right, can you bow your heads and hearts with me now? Lord Jesus, as we just sang, we turn our eyes to you. And I do pray that as we look to you now and to your word, that you would, you would teach us what you have for us today. Help us to learn from you through the writings of your servant Paul. I pray that my words would be clear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're out of 1 Corinthians 7 this morning, and we are going to be in this another section of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. This section starts in chapter 8, and it moves all the way up to chapter 11. And here, um, we're going to cover this section with four sermons, chapters 8 to 11, four sermons. Now, Paul is still answering questions that the Corinthians wrote a letter to him about. So back in chapter 7, verse 1, remember Paul says, Now, for the things that you wrote to me about, and he starts addressing topics of marriage and family, and now there's a new topic starting in chapter 8 that he is going to deal with. Chapters 8, chapters 9, and chapters 10. And here is the question. The Corinthians are wondering, Paul, should Christians be eating meat? Anybody like eating meat? <coughs> Maybe cheeseburgers? Should Christians be eating meat that has been offered in a sacrifice to an idol? Now you may be like, what? What does that even mean? It's so foreign to our world. Like, we don't have a temple in Granville where chickens get whacked every day as an offering to the chicken god. I mean, that's just so foreign to our, our context. But, especially in Asia, this is run-of-the-mill stuff. You see it on the sides of the road, little trinkets and little things offered to these little golden idols. So, what this requires is us, as God's people living in the West, we have to kind of try to get our heads in that world a little bit, to even understand what's going on. So imagine right now a Christian that is living in Nepal, or in, um, you know, Tibet, or in uh, India, okay? They, they read something like this, in the land of a million gods, India, and, and they're like, oh yeah, I get it. But, but us, we're like, what? It's like sticking our head into a different world. So let's try to do that a minute. In the world of the Corinthians, the local temple was the hub, the main happening place of all religious worship and rituals in the community. And there was, you know, like if you go down to the south, there's like a church on every street corner, okay, in some places in the south. Well, there was local temples almost on every street corner, like Starbucks in Chicago, all over the place. And these temples were filled with 
idols to all the various gods and goddesses that the Greeks and the Romans would worship. Every god got a temple spread throughout the city. Some popular ones got multiple temples. Now, at these temples, these houses for the earthly, a temple is an earthly house for a god. It's like he lives in heaven, but when he does show up, we'll build him a little house. And, uh, and we got this little shiny idol have gold or silver or stone that we've carved, that we've made, that kind of represents him. We know that's not him, but it represents him on earth. So if we make a sacrifice to this little shiny gold thing, it's like we're making a sacrifice to this God we can't see. So that's what would be in the temple is an idol of the God. And yet when the people sacrificed their animals to these idols, they typically did it outside, in front of the temple, in full view of the public. And after sacrificing animals to their idols, which obviously the gold idol did not eat, um, a lot of times the priests would help make the food disappear, right? So you, you sacrifice your chicken to the idol and... Um, Look, my chicken disappeared. The idol must have ate it. Nah, the priests are back in the back having a chicken dinner. Okay? But there was so much meat being burned and killed here at the temples that there was an excess of meat. And so two things were done with this meat. Um, well, three things. The priests would eat some of it. Okay? Probably the best parts. And then they'd also save some to sell on the temple grounds. And so remember what I said about how the temples were like hubs of activity? Well, you ever been in a Domino's pizza and they've got like a side room that you can reserve for a birthday party and you can have pizza there, Domino's pizza, right? Like the temples, a lot of temples were kind of like that. They had side rooms that you could reserve for big parties and guess what was served there? The chicken that got whacked. I'm, I'm saying chicken. It probably wasn't chicken. You know, pigs, sheep, goats, cows. Um, chicken just sounds funny. But it's, it's mostly meat that was sacrificed to the idols. Meat was a hot commodity in that day and age. The average person didn't have access to meat, right? This is a very expensive thing. It's getting that way here, isn't it? Um, so uh, thank the Lord for, for deer meat. But we, we don't totally relate to that. We can go to the store and just get meat, but there, a lot of the meat that you ran into would have been, at one point, offered to an idol. And you give the idol a little bit, priests make it disappear, and the rest of it gets sold, either in these big dining halls where you rent for birthday parties, things like that, or they would sell it, there would guys that would come to the temple at the end of the sacrifices, and they would see all this raw meat and they'd be like, hey, I'll give you $20 for a bulk deal, you know? And then they'd take it down to the market and they would sell it on the market. How $40, fresh meat, right? And mark it up. And that's, this, this was just how life worked. And so when you bought meat at the marketplace, there was a really good chance that when you went to Price Chopper, whatever their version of that was, more than half that meat laying there as it had at one point been waved in front of an item. She didn't know, so whatever. What you didn't know didn't hurt you. You just bought it, okay? 
Paul's not going to address that in this section of the letter, but he'll get to that in 1 Corinthians 10. What do you do about meat sacrificed in the um, sacrificed in the uh, or, or sold in the meat markets? He'll get to that. Um, but what Paul is dealing with right now is eating meat that was in the temple. Should Christians do that? Should they have their birthday parties in the side room with the idol outside? How should they think about that? Now, in chapter 10 of our letter today, Paul is going to tell Christians a general principle. They need to flee idolatry. So, they need to flee any kind of idolatrous ceremonies where the meat is being offered to the idols. So for them to stand there and be a part of a ceremony where they're eating the meat, the meat's being sacrificed to idols, and they're right there as a part of the ceremony just waiting for it to be over. It's like, we know the idol's not real, but we want some meat. And they're part of that ceremony, okay? And then they stick around, and then they, they pick out with the priests later, okay? Paul is going to tell them, flee that kind of thing, because there's real demons behind that idol. The gods of the nations are real. They're demons. That's what the Bible presents us with. Spiritual beings that God created and then that rebelled against God. They control people through idolatry. We'll talk about that more in a couple weeks. But there's something that Paul seems to say is okay here, but you might not want to do it because it might cause your brother or sister in Christ to struggle. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And that okay thing was eating the meat not in one of those idolatrous ceremonies, but maybe like at a birthday party, okay? Like, is it okay to just show up at the temple like you would at a local restaurant and kind of steer clear around the idol and say, well, it meets me. All right? Again, meat was a treat. And so you didn't have to be a part of a big religious shindig outside the temple with all the pomp and the ceremony. You could kind of avoid that thing and still go to the temple, go to that, those side rooms, the dining halls, recline at table and eat some meat that maybe a couple hours before had been waved in front of an idol, but now you're at a birthday party and it's not it's not the same thing. So there's another thing here that we need to talk about. If Christians in Paul's church got an invite from somebody really important to a birthday party in the temple. And maybe let's say that person's not a Christian. But they say, hey, I want you to come to my birthday party down at Zeus's temple. We're serving pork. It's gonna be great. Okay? If you said no, nah, I don't want, I just don't wanna, I just don't wanna go anywhere near the idols. That's too much part of my past life. Um, I just, I, I just, 
I just don't want to do that. If you said no, you probably lose that friendship, right? That was a big deal. And you would probably lose social credit. You know, you, you would not, it would, it would not look good for you socially. And there was a lot of Christians in the Corinthian church that were influential in society. They were important people. And so to turn down invitations to parties like these, that might hurt them financially, relationally. They might lose their jobs. So this was a tricky topic here. And some Christians say, yeah, that's what we need to do. we got to just boycott the whole thing. And other Christians say, well, we know that the idols aren't real. So come on, Paul. Right? Come on, guys. These are not real. We can, we can eat this meat. It doesn't hurt us. So let's look. That's the background. Hopefully that paints a little bit of a picture of what's going on. If you were to say no to the whole thing, that, 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 that was going to be tricky. So what's Paul's answer? Should we eat or should we not eat, Paul? Yes or no? And Paul's answer is maybe. <laughs> but probably not. <laughs> so that's what we're going to And it's tricky. So chapters 8 to 10. We're not going to preach them all. We're looking at 8. Now, he says, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. And then you're like, what knowledge? And Paul's like, squirrel. He says some things about knowledge and love, and then he gets back to knowledge in chapter in verse 4. So if you're like, what's this knowledge that we have? He's going to get there. But he says something about knowledge before he explains what the knowledge is. We all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Now it gets to the knowledge. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know, what do we know with our knowledge? An idol is nothing at all in the world. And that there is no God but one. Two statements. Idols are nothing in the world. And there's no God but one. For... Even if there are, and literally Paul says, even if there are named gods, whether in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everybody possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, to a real god. And since their conscience is weak, their sense of right and wrong is, is, is weak here, it is defiled. Their conscience becomes defiled. <clears throat> and Paul says, but food doesn't bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do eat, and no better if we do. So whether you eat the chicken or not, it doesn't bring you closer to God. Be careful, however, he says, that the exercise of your right does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, what's the knowledge? Remember? There's no such thing as idols. They're just hunks of stone. 
if they see you eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened? Get you know, bold to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, now Paul speaks, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So this morning, we're going to work through chapters eight, chapter 8 in three steps that follow the basic flow of what Paul's saying here. So we're just going to work right through. Paul talks first about the truth about idols that a group called we know. So there's a group that's in the know about idols, the we. We know something about idols that everyone knows. And the truth is an idol is nothing at all in the world. There's just one God. Second, Paul talks about the consciences of the weak. There are Christians with weak consciences who really feel like there's more to these golden idols than meets the eye. And they don't, they're worried about it. Paul's actually going to resonate a little bit with that in chapter 10. But here he's acknowledging that it is true that an idol is just a hunk of wood or stone. Third, Paul calls issues a call to love these weak brothers by not exercising your Christian freedom to eat. So to love, love makes you rethink what you might have a right to do. So one... The truth about idols. Two, the consciences of the weak. Three, the call to love our brothers. And here's the main idea. A Christian's love must govern a Christian's freedom. Christian's love ought to govern, control a Christian's freedom. Say it a different way. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. All right? Just because something is something you can do doesn't mean you ought to do it or that it's loving to do it. That's the main point of this whole section, really, chapters 8 to 10. Just because something is morally permissible for you to do doesn't mean it's morally loving for you to do it. And that requires wisdom, doesn't it? That's why Paul spends so much time on this. It's complicated. So here's the truth about idols, verses 1 to 6. Listen again to verses 1 to 6. Again, here's a blunt translation. Uh, in verses 4 to 5, I'm just going to include my own translation. It's just a blunt translation. There's something I want to key in on that gets a little lost sometimes if you don't translate it bluntly. So if it differs just a little bit in verses 4 to 5, that's just my me trying to say it literally. Now about food sacrifice to idols... Paul says, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are not so-called gods, because that means it, you know, so-called God, even if there are named gods, whether in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords that people name, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. 
So we'll jump right into these verses. Paul starts off by saying, we all possess knowledge. Then he goes off on a little bit of a side trail, and he makes a comment about the dangers of just possessing knowledge about something. This rabbit trail is not really a random detail. It's a, a sneak preview of where Paul's going to land at the end. He's going to close out the section in verse 13 with the idea that love of God and neighbor ought to govern the way we use our knowledge of the truth. We'll cruise through the rabbit trail and then hone in on what we know in verse 4. Um, so I've, we're going to really land on the love piece at the end. Paul says, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. When your head is just filled with facts about something and not accompanied by compassion and love for other people, you'll end up being puffed up with pride and you'll tear other people down. In verse, and that's just a, a reality. Our compassion towards people tends to lag behind our ability to obtain information that proves people wrong. So we can obtain information and say, yeah, they're wrong. I know the truth about this. But not have a genuine compassion towards them. We can start to scorn people that think different. I know the facts. And because they don't know the facts, I'm better than them, smarter than them, less gullible than them, more informed than them, not as stupid as them. I know the facts. And they don't. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Love seeks to edify and come alongside and use knowledge as a tool to serve. Verse 2, Paul warns the Corinthians that think they're in the know on the topic he's addressing. He says, you think you know, but you still don't know as you ought to know. There is a way of knowing things that leads to destruction and destroyed relationships. Some people know things and they set social media ablaze until they have no friends, right? Watch me with my keyboard destroy every relationship I have because I know something, all right? That, this is tragic. Boy, see it. Maybe you've experienced it. I know I've even hurt people by commenting and, and, and well, I shouldn't have done that. A loving thing always. There's a way of knowing things, though, that leads to wise living in the light of that knowledge. Knowledge should be governed by love, deep affection for someone else for their good. Lest you be filled up with pride and self-importance over how much you know. And so that's where Paul says what he says next. He says, those who claim to love God are known by God. In other words, lest you get all filled up and puffed up with pride and self-importance about how much you know, remember God knows you to the very bottom. Everything about you, God knows. And he loves you completely. His knowledge is more infinite than yours could ever be. So we who love him are known by him to the bottom of our souls. So what is this knowledge we all possess? Well, I've already told you, and he gets back to this topic in verse 4. 
So back to the food and idol question, he says, after this detour about love and puffed up knowledge. He says, we know, here's what we know, we know an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. These two statements are probably two things that the, the Corinthians in the know said to him in their letter to him. Paul, it, it's okay for us to eat this meat in the temple dinners, right? Because an idol, it's nothing at all in the world. It's just a hunk of gold. And there's only one true creator, God. That's what you taught us, right, Paul? And so now Paul says a clarifying comment in verses 5 to 6. He doesn't disagree. That's true knowledge. They're right. He says, For even if there are named gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords that people name. In other words, people call on the names of all sorts of gods that these idols represent in heaven. Zeus, Artemis, of the Ephesians, Aphrodite, on and on. Heaven, God's name, whether in heaven or on earth. You see that? Who would a God on earth be that was named by the Romans? Or a Lord? Caesar. Caesar. Caesar claimed to be Lord, both Lord and God. Okay? So there are many gods in heaven that are named, these powers that are named in heaven, and there's gods on earth that are named, like Caesar, lords. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father. From whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. So yes, Paul says, there's many gods and many lords that are named. But we worship the one true creator God in heaven. We call him Father and he made everything. And we worship the one Lord who came to earth. The Lord, we worship the God of heaven, and we worship the Lord of earth. Many gods named in the heavens and on earth. Zeus, Caesar, we worship the Father, and we worship the Son, Jesus, the Messiah, who is also the creator of all things and the source of our lives. We will talk in a few weeks about spiritual beings in the heavenly realms, both God's angels and demons in rebellion against God, and how those spiritual beings in the minds of the biblical authors were real, and they masqueraded as gods on earth. We'll talk about that. Behind the idols, says Paul, are demons. We'll get there. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 to 22. Yes, an idol is nothing at all in the world. It's a piece of gold that God made. 
but there are real spiritual powers and beings named in heaven and earth. And they are not to be feared because God is the creator, not Zeus. And Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. This is a key place where Jesus is equal with the Father. This is so huge here. Jesus, along with the Father, is called Lord, God, and Creator here in these verses. This is a key place in the New Testament where Paul articulates the deity of Jesus. You can go to dozens of other places, even in this letter, but this is one place. So, in these verses, we've seen the truth about idols that the Corinthians know. They're just pieces of gold. They're nothing at all in this world. They have no authority spiritually. And Paul agrees. And even though there are a host of deities that people name and worship, we worship one God, and he's the creator of everything. And we worship one Lord, and he is Lord of earth and heaven. So it, it, isn't it okay to eat meat sacrificed to non-existent idols so long as we know they don't exist, Paul? Well... In and of itself, there's nothing inherently wrong with the meat. But that isn't the only thing to consider. And that's what Paul's going to get to in verse 7. And it's point 2 this morning. So nothing about this meat is contaminated by being waved in front of a piece of gold that people worship. Nothing. It's meat. The pork is still pork. It didn't go through some process where it was contaminated because of what you waved it in front of. If you're hungry, eat it. Sure. But there might be something more to think about. And that's what Paul is going to talk about next. The consciences of the weak in verses 7 to 8. Verse 7, he says, Not everyone, assuming in the church, possesses this knowledge, the knowledge that an idol is nothing at all. Some people are still so accustomed to idols, they, they just, they're steeped in this world. And they've come out of it, started to follow Jesus, that when they eat sacrificial food, they still think of it as having been sacrificed to a, to a real God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So Paul is reminding the Corinthians, not everyone has the same feeling about idols. There's Christians in the church who, after years and years of worshiping idols and experiencing the pagan religions, they finally come to faith in Jesus, and yet everything about the pagan temples and the idols and the food sacrificed to them feels so connected to their dark past in idolatry, and it just feels so wrong to them that they, they really feel like eating food connected to the temple in any way is just wrong. And Christians shouldn't do it. Their consciences don't let them go there. They feel like the food really was sacrificed to a god. And it's contaminated. And they feel even strongly, more strongly, that it would be dishonoring to the one Lord and Father of Jesus to eat that food. So Paul says that this position is a weak conscience position. What is your conscience? Well, in the Bible, your conscience is your internal sense of right and wrong. Animals don't have a conscience. They just have instinct. 
Now, human, we have an internal sense of right and wrong. Everyone has a conscience, not just Christians. Every person has a sense of right and wrong. Some of it is culturally conditioned. But we all have a conscience, not just Christians. Now, someone's conscience can be crazy off, out of whack, but it's still there. And everyone knows what it's like to defile your own inner sense of right and wrong. It feels miserable to go ahead with some action, even though everything in us is screaming at us, don't do it, don't do it, and you still do it. It's not just Christians that feel that. Everybody can experience that feeling. And yet when we do become Christians, our conscience, our sense of right and wrong, it needs to be retrained and recalibrated to God's moral compass of what is right and wrong. For these Christians, everything about the food sacrificed to idols just feels wrong. Even though theologically, from God's point of view, it's just food and it can't defile them, they still feel it's wrong. Paul makes this really clear in verse 8, where he comments on the weak conscience position. He says, after stating some people's consciences struggle with this, he says, but remember guys, I'm not disagreeing with you still, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. That's huge for understanding what he's saying here. The theologically correct position is that you could stuff yourself full of food sacrificed to idols and be no further or no closer to God. Okay? It's food. Meat is meat. And it belongs to the Creator. No matter what hocus-pocus ceremony was performed over it along its way to your mouth. Think about the ramifications of this for the Christian life. It's true of all sorts of things in this created sphere. All money is God's. No matter where it comes from, he owns it. Every atom in creation is God's. No matter where it comes from. My iPhone, videoing me right now, contains 75 of the 118 elements that are on the periodic table. Elements that were designed by the creator, complete with their perfect arrangement of electrons and protons and neutrons into atoms that are now working together to channel the powers of creation, electricity that God wired to work according to laws that he designed. And Apple just figured it out, how to chop things up and cut things up and glue things together. 75 of those 118 elements so that now we can harness what God created to send messages and to project his word to the internet. I mean, that is amazing. The earth is the Lord's. Everything in the earth is the Lord's. Food is the Lord's. It is defiled human hearts in rebellion against God that seek to use the objects of creation in rebellion against God. Iron is a great good. Iron can be used 
to make plows to feed the earth. Iron was used to nail Jesus' hands to the cross. A tree is a great gift from God. A tree brings shade. A tree brings wood. A tree brings fruit. And a tree brought death to the Son of God. Does that mean iron or trees are evil and should be avoided? Does that mean iPhones should be avoided because they can be used for evil? No. In the case of food sacrifice to idols, the theologically correct position says food is food. However, the way that we use the things of creation created by God ought to be controlled and governed by godly love of neighbor, which takes wisdom. And that is what Paul is going to explain in verses 9 to 13, the call to love our brothers. So remember, Paul is speaking to people who are saying, we can eat whatever we want. And he says, verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, your theologically correct position about food, sure, it's just, we understand, it's just food, but they see you eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ because they're his people. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Paul would swear off cheeseburgers forever if it meant showing love to a brother or sister in Christ and protecting their faith. And everything was governed by love. What's going on in these verses, right? There are Christians in the church who feel strongly that eating meat sacrificed to an idol is somehow participating in worshiping that idol. It's rooted deeply in their lived experience and their past and in how they feel and they think. And no theological truth bombs from the knowledge group can change the way they feel about it. Their consciences feel so strongly that it's wrong. And because they love Jesus and they honor Jesus and they want to worship Jesus and not these idols, they avoid meat. As we'll see later in this letter, they even avoid the meat sold in the marketplaces. They want to know the, the, the trail that, you know, like, how was this used? Because I don't want to buy something and use it if it's been contaminated in any way by the path to get to me. Like, I want to know this. I don't have a dollar in my wallet. I want to know how has this individual dollar been used as it's gone through thousands of hands? Because if it's been used for evil, I don't even want to touch it. Like, well, that sounds silly. But that's the type of thing they were doing. I don't want to eat that meat. But Paul says, and Paul's navigating all these situations, and he says, these people, we have to show them love 
even if it means sacrificing freedom. Because for them, eating meat could be an on-ramp back to idolatry and back to everything that was bad about their past. So imagine these people, they walk by the temple, somebody with a weak conscience that feels, I don't know, I don't want to go down that road, and they walk by the temple, and all oh, they see several of their well-connected Christian friends from church and a birthday party reclining at tables in the restaurant, eating their fill of meat. The earth is the Lord's, they say. Come get it while it's hot. Come join us. And imagine that Christian walks by, and even though everything in him is screaming, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it. Don't dishonor the Lord. He goes in and walks past the idols where he used to worship. And he goes and he eats meat with his friends. This wounds his conscience. And if he keeps doing it again and again, doing things that everything in him screams is wrong, eventually, over time, he'll go grow accustomed to going ahead and doing what feels wrong and could, over time, destroy his faith in Jesus and lead to a return to the very paganism he left when he decided to follow Jesus. That would be a tragedy. And so in verse 13, Paul says that there's even a chance, and here, this is key for understanding Corinthians, there was a big chance. <laughs> so that's why Paul, is, he's building towards his ultimate thing in 1 Corinthians 10, where he says, I don't care what the theologically correct position is, flee idolatry. All right, that, that's where he's going to end in chapter 10. To heck with the birthday parties, okay? Suffer for Jesus. But he's getting, in verse 13, he says that if there was even a chance that this kind of scenario would unfold, he would swear off me forever. That was a loving thing to do. So now as we move towards a conclusion, here's the main idea. A Christian's love must govern a Christian's freedom. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should just because the Christian's theology told them it was okay to eat meat, it did not mean that eating that meat was the best move for the family of Jesus. It's never loving to act in a way that encourages and emboldens a fellow believer to do what they feel in their conscience Jesus doesn't want them to do. This doesn't mean that we can't talk with them Bible's open. That's important. It doesn't mean that we can't talk with them. Bible's open and try to get them to recalibrate their conscience in light of God's word. Because sometimes people have hang-ups about things that are not sinful. We can get, seek to try to get them to reconsider in light of the word. That's different than saying... Just do it anyway. Just do it anyway. We put love of our brother first. For example, here's an example. In many cultures around the world, demonic spirits are worshipped directly. People come to faith in Jesus in some of these contexts 
having experienced all sorts of powerful spiritual experiences through those evil spirits. And often, music and dance plays a key role in their worship of the spirits. And not just any music, but specific tones and tunes and dances and instruments and beats. Now sometimes when these Christians come to faith in Jesus in a context like that, they become theologically convinced that Jesus is the only spirit who has total control and is worthy of worship. And that the other lords they used to worship were just rebellious demons. So what, they what sometimes in these contexts they do is they take their old tunes and they write new words to them. Praise songs to Jesus. And they dance the same dances that they used to dance for the demons and they dance them for Jesus. Christians in these settings have to be very cautious about that. I think Paul would write verse 13 to them. You might want to reconsider because many people who come to faith in those type of contexts, they still experience tremendous levels of fear towards the spirits that they used to worship. Backsliding again into serving the spirits is a real temptation for these young Christians that have come to faith. It would be very unloving for Christians in a culture like that to encourage a new believer to participate in songs and in dances so connected in their minds to their former religion that it leads them away from Christ, and back into the clutches of the darkness. Yes, a tune is just a tune. Rock music isn't the devil's music or something like that. There's nothing inherently immoral about sound waves. God created them, all of them, for his glory. They don't belong to the demons. They never have. However, it is not loving for Christians to use sound waves in ways that may tempt a brother or sister in Christ to go against their conscience and to slip back into old ways of living. Love must govern our use of sound waves. So music is what's music? I mean, it's basically sound wave movement that we can hear, right? Now, there's a whole host of other applications we can look at that are more relevant to our context. I think the subject of alcohol in the Christian life can fit loosely into this category. And the reason I say loosely is because the connection to flat-out idolatry is not as close. So most people that maybe struggled with alcohol and drunkenness before Christ weren't using alcohol in pagan ceremonies where they were getting drunk and worshiping some god. Okay, this is not a it's not an on ramp for people back into um, idolatrous, rebellious worship of you know other gods. However, there are Christians who have experienced the misuse of alcohol in their families and the brokenness that it causes in their own life and in the lives of those around them that it just feels, even, even looking at it, it just feels so wrong. Okay? It's, it's like, I just don't even want to go near that. 
don't want to dishonor Jesus, and, and, and that's wrong for me. And, and Paul would say to the Christian that knows biblically, and I, this is my position, that the Bible condemns drunkenness and nowhere condemns alcohol in and of itself. That's a, something we know, Paul would say. And yet, to say, come here, brother, it's okay. You can have a drink. It's no problem. And if they're doing that and their conscience is saying, no, 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 I shouldn't do it, I shouldn't do it, but oh boy, I want to. That is not loving at all. Better to never drink again than to put a brother in that situation. Now, now that's a lot different than maybe drinking in the presence of somebody who's never tasted a drop of alcohol in their life and they're, you know, they don't think it's, they think it's wrong to drink alcohol. You know, it's a sin to drink alcohol. I'm not going to drink alcohol. And, well, you're not causing them to struggle with their conscience if, you, if they know that you have drank. Okay, so it's, it's a little bit different scenario. And I don't have time to flesh out all the nuances there, but I think that it loosely, this, this passage does, I would say, apply to the realm of conscience and the believer. Love of neighbor should govern freedom in that area, okay? A Christian, I believe, is free to drink alcohol so long as they do not get drunk. All right, that is my position. That's the majority position on these issues. Um, however, love should govern every taste, right? And you need to use wisdom. Other areas of conscience, what movies and shows someone continues chooses to watch can also be in the realm of conscience. Don't say, come watch this with us, when their conscience is screaming, no, 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 no. Come dress this way. No, no, no. No, it's not loving. We must try to protect the consciences of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for brothers governs how we choose to exercise freedom in Jesus. Just like love for us governed the way Jesus related to us. In a more broad sense, I'll end with this, there may be countless things that we as Christians are morally free to do with our time, with our money, with our possessions. We're free to spend our time a whole host of ways as Christians. We have the right. God, God gave us the gift of time. As long as we're not dishonoring God with our time, we can, but Paul would want us to let our freedom to do whatever we want with our time, with our money, with our resources, love for the family of Jesus should govern how we use all those things. And Jesus is our great example here close with this. Jesus left the freedom of heaven because of love. And he took on the limits of a human body that had to go to sleep, that grew weak and tired. He took on those limits for us to serve us. And so that's what we're going to celebrate now as we turn to the Lord's table. And so I'm going to ask if... Um, Jacob, if you would come up and pass it out, and also Richard, would you?
brothers pass out the Lord's Supper for us. Um, Jesus left heaven to become a man for us. This is Jesus' great um, moment of putting aside his rights, okay, to serve his family, spiritual family. So remember that as we prepare our hearts to take and drink what Jesus has done for us. I'm going to just give a moment of silence as you consider what Christ has done for you. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he broke it, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after taking the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would stir our hearts with gratitude to the Lord Jesus, the one who laid aside his freedom and his rights who emptied himself and became a man humbled himself even to death, death on a cross for our good Lord I pray that we would use our Christian knowledge and our skills and our abilities, our time, our money our talents, we would use those things in the service of love for others and love for you Pray that we would be a people whose actions are governed by love. Because, Lord, that is the goal that you have for us 
to be transformed into the image of Jesus, that we would live and love like him. We pray that you would move in our hearts this truth in Jesus' name. Amen.